Good morning. I want to talk a little bit about time and opportunities. And uh, I feel like this somehow fits with the, the day after a school sale weekend. We've been doing a lot of preparation and thinking of this event sneaking up on us. So I'm going to, I'm going to tell a story first and then read a few verses and then make a few comments. So this story, this happened quite a while ago, back when I was in Romania, probably 2002 or three. One of the BS girls had a problem with her passport, and I can't remember exactly what it was. My memory is that it was something like pages needed to be added, which doesn't sound very significant, but that's just uh, what my dim memory has in mind. Anyway, it involved a trip to the U.S. Embassy in Bucharest, which, uh, from where we were at, uh, near Kadamsevich, was about four or six-hour train ride. And uh, me and my friend Christopher got this assignment to go run, go down to Bucharest with the passport. I think we had some special documentation indicating we were allowed to have this passport. Take it to the American Embassy and uh, probably kill some time in Bucharest and then come back. So we were quite happy to have this assignment because it was definitely more interesting than whatever else was going on at the time. Uh, so we were going to take an overnight train down to Bucharest. And uh, I think it was going to leave about 10 o'clock. And we were, we already had our tickets. We were at the orphanage and uh, we had our, you know, our backpacks, everything we needed. We were just kind of killing time for a while for this, for it to become time to go. And the orphanage was kind of the, the center of social activity at, at, this, at our mission there in Kosenish. Uh So we were, you know, having a good time talking to friends and probably drinking coffee and eating popcorn or playing chess and discussing whether the pre-millennialists were right or not was one of our uh, topics. I, I don't really remember what all we were doing back in those days, but um, me and Christopher were, were involved in something, and suddenly we looked up, and I remember where the clock was on the wall. And we looked at the clock, and I think both of us kind of made these calculations uh, certain steps had to happen. Each one took a certain amount of time, and we suddenly realized we had like a very thin slice of time remaining, uh, if any. So we jumped up, ran out of the orphanage, called a taxi. A taxi was going to take us. Started running down the street. I can still remember it was a, a very pretty kind of Romanian dusty summer evening. I think it was summer. And uh, finally the taxi was coming and we were running down the sidewalk toward it to you know, save as much time as possible. Uh, they, they had a little you know, toaster-sized car, a Daewoo, I remember. We jumped inside, got him turned around, told him where we were going, told him to hurry as, as fast as possible. And he grumbled at us, I remember that. He wasn't happy about hurrying. And so we were banging out the road and, and toward the train station, got there pretty quickly, ran, we already had our tickets, we ran through the train station out the other side to the platform where we saw a train already starting to move. 
And I jumped up at one car, and I think he did maybe at another one a little farther back, and I couldn't get the door open. So, which is a little strange. I don't, uh, I don't remember the, the doors to these cars ever locking. I mean, if you wanted to open the door of a train car while it was cruising at 100 kilometers an hour, it was no problem. You could. It was, you know, this was not, you know, safety was not the kind of priority all the time. But we couldn't get these, train, these, these car doors open, so we had to jump back off. Fortunately, the train wasn't, wasn't really moving fast yet, so we hopped back on the platform, which is, you know, the right thing to do. You really didn't want to ride on the outside of a train car too long. And uh, so we, we stood there on the platform and watched the train disappear into the darkness and uh, felt very foolish. Because it's not like we were really doing anything that important back there. We had had plenty of time, and it just somehow evaporated on us. I still can't understand what happened all that time we had. And then we found out the train we were trying to board wasn't even the right one. I, I don't remember where it would have taken us, but it wasn't going to be for us. So I guess it was a good thing we couldn't get on that train. But I just remember feeling very foolish. I don't remember if we stayed at the station and got our tickets changed or if we had to go just go home and wait and do it another day. I almost think we just went home and tried a day or two later. Now, I want to read a few scriptures about time. The first two talk more about time in the sense of, of um, opportunity, a, a window of opportunity. And uh, then the next two scriptures more have to do with the days of our life slipping past. So Ephesians 5.15, and he leads up to these verses by talking about us not getting involved in works of darkness, but being a light instead. So Ephesians 5, verse 15 says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. And some translations will say opportunities. Because the days are evil, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So look carefully how you walk. And King James Version would say circumspectly, looking around. Make the best use of your time. Don't be foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Be wise. It's quite a quite a call there. Ephesians five fifteen, and then the next verse is Colossians four verse five. It's using the same word that is translated time or opportunity. Colossians four five says, "Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, that you may know how." you all to answer each person. Be a light. Make the use of your opportunities. Be a witness. Alright, then the next two passages talk more about time in the sense of a chronological event. These both come from Psalm. Psalm 90, you're familiar with this. This is a psalm that talks about God being everlasting. Man isn't. Man quickly returns to dust. Maybe he lives 70 years. Maybe he lives a bit more. 
Psalm 90, verse 12 says, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. And Psalm 39, verses 4 and 5 say, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath, sealed. All right, here's a few things for us to think about. Why do people understand the significance of time passing? It's an ordinary event, but it is a significant thing for time to pass. They understand it before it's too late. Christopher and I did not understand that when we were sitting at the table and involved in whatever conversation or activity we were involved in. We weren't really understanding. I mean, we knew that time was passing, right? But we hadn't made the connection. We hadn't figured out the significance of it, really. But when we were running into the train station, we had pretty good clarity at that point of time that we had been foolish. But at that point, the consequences were kind of irreversible. And that can be the consequence of us missing time and opportunities. Why do people understand these consequences before they become irreversible? You know, you can waste things that can be replenished, like money and food and energy can all be replenished. Hopefully you will replenish some energy this morning or today. But running out of time is sort of, it's kind of like a game over sort of moment in that you can't add it back. You can't put it back. Not even a nanosecond can be added back. One preacher I was listening to talk about these verses said, God has given you the, the right number of days that you need for your life. He really has. I mean, He's given you the number of days you need to accomplish to do what you need to do in your lifetime. But uh, we can waste we can waste that time. We can waste those opportunities. So here's a, I want to think of just a few different areas in which we can waste time. We can waste time with our children by not using the opportunities we have to teach them and build relationships with them. We can waste time with the law by not living a consistent testimony by not talking to them about Jesus, by not getting involved in their problems. It's an area in which I need to grow in. Last week I actually did a little bit of, and this is not something I do often, so I don't want to give you the false impression, but but I did stop to help out someone whose whose car was broken down. I I I turned around there's about two different points in all of this. I, I almost decided to keep on going. But anyway, I finally stopped, fully expecting him to say no, he was crying and all that. That's usually what happens, you know, that got thrown out. But this guy needed to get to work, and he didn't have anybody to call. He was very desperate for a ride to work. So I gave him a ride to work, and on the way we talked a little bit about things. And uh, I kind of brought God into the conversation, and he, he put up with me pretty well because I guess he had to. 
And um, I kind of figured out he was not a Christian. I, I don't know that I did a very good job of witnessing to him, but I did tell him that I thought I was pretty sure God wanted me to pick him up, and he agreed with that. And I also told him I was pretty sure that God wanted him to think about it, and he kind of had to agree with that too. So we can waste time with our children, we can waste time with the lost, we can try to waste time with each other. I'm talking about time we should be using well to benefit each other. But worst of all, we can waste time with Jesus by not saying yes to Him, by not spending the time to get to know Him, by getting involved in the unfruitful works of darkness spoken about in Ephesians chapter 5. So I guess my challenge for you and for me is, is just to make sure that we're using our time and opportunities wisely. Often I think that's going to involve not us becoming more busy people, but probably the opposite, actually slowing down a bit more for the right things and putting aside distractions and cutting off things that just aren't helpful and more focused on what really matters. So may God give us wisdom to understand and follow His will, understand His will, and be wise people when it comes to our time and our opportunities. God bless you. Good morning, everyone. Uh, first, I want to say thanks to all the folks who uh, made good use of their time. Uh, yesterday and last evening, and uh, this place looks very nice this morning. And I think I saw Austin driving around the floor polisher last evening, and I know many others of you helped with the cleanup around here. So I appreciate that very much. God did bless our day. And I hope He blessed all of you who were here and involved with the rest. Uh, I want to look at a couple of verses in Matthew 13. <clears throat> and I understood uh, when Galen uh, made up this little program that his, his talk and my talk were kind of like equal little uh, sermonettes or whatever. So if his was a brief meditation, that's kind of what I was thinking too. But uh, we'll, we'll see where this goes. Matthew 13. Beginning at verse 44, I'm reading from the New King James. Again, he's giving some uh, little parables, brief, very brief parables of uh, on the kingdom of heaven. And this is breaking into a, a series, and they're in little couplets, and this would be one of them. Verse 44, again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. The treasure here is the kingdom of heaven. And the treasure is Christ's kingdom, is really what it is. 
And if you really get down to uh, the core of it, the treasure is Jesus Christ. The treasure is Christ. And here it describes it, I'm looking at verse 44, as a treasure hidden in a field. And that would be rare, but not unheard of, if somebody would have a treasure that they wanted to hide and keep secret from others and keep safe from others and uh, bury it somewhere or in a place where no one else would think of looking. I read the other day about somebody who stuck $100 bills into a shotgun barrel uh, to keep safe. No one would look there for $100 bills. And he forgot about it until he went and shot the gun one time and saw this sort of green confetti coming down. So, uh, a treasure in a field, buried in a field, the chances of finding such a treasure would be small, you would think. Uh, It would seem kind of remote because it was hidden there so it would not be found. Is Christ hidden? Is the light of the world hidden? A city set on a hill? Well, I believe what this is telling us is that the treasure is not set up like a monument that cannot be missed, like a huge edifice uh, set up above ground and going high in the air, like the Tower of Babel may have looked like, uh, that it could not be missed by anyone with eyes. But uh, this is a treasure that can be missed. Paul on Mars Hill said this to people that were gathered there uh, so that they should seek the Lord. He had put man on the earth and set the boundaries for mankind and uh, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for Him and find Him though He is not far from each one of us. So, uh, someone wrote this way, that the difficulty of finding God lies not in His distance from us, but in our distance from Him through the blinding effects of sin. So, thinking about that field, how many people might have walked across that field and never knew that they walked right beside, right across, right near that uh, treasure that was buried there and never stumbled over it. But someone, one person did. One person did. And how many people in Jesus' day uh, saw Jesus, heard Jesus, watched Him heal and comfort people, and never recognize the treasure that he is. He was right there among them. In Mexico, there's a man, uh, Kelvin Mann is his name. He, uh, his family, his parents were from Amelia, Virginia, just a couple of hours from near, near, near Richmond. And uh, they moved when he was young to Mexico as missionaries and were there all 
his life, he just stayed there. And uh, he, uh, not too long ago, I know, I know uh, I've, I've had some correspondence with his brother, uh, met his brother. Uh, but not too long ago, uh, he bought a used refrigerator from a friend for $150. And the refrigerator, after he plugged it in, ran more longer at a time than he thought it should. He thought it should be cooling better than it did. So he he was a little disappointed and uh, wondered if it maybe had a problem. And he unplugged it and stored it away somewhere. And not long after that, his uh, friend who had sold it to him called and asked if he still had that fridge. That some men had come to his place and were asking questions about it. And they wanted to know where it was, but they wanted to buy it. And um, so Kelvin could use the money, and uh, he was willing to sell it, happy to sell it. And a few days later, two men came. Uh, being a man of integrity, Kelvin wanted to tell them, wanted to be sure they understood that he didn't think it was working quite like it ought to be working. They asked if he had tried to fix it, and he said he had thought about taking it apart, but he never did. And uh, the men said if it didn't work, they wanted to buy it. They said if it didn't work, they would call him back. They, they wanted the fridge pretty bad. And they paid him the money. I, I think he asked for 150 for it again, maybe. I'm not sure exactly, but... They didn't even try to bargain with him about it. They just loaded it up and took off. And uh, Kelvin heard nothing from them. But it all seemed a little odd to him. And later, he heard from uh, the man who had sold it to him, who found out some things, that a previous owner of that fridge had stored in it, a million dollars for safekeeping. Kelvin didn't know that. The friend who sold it to him didn't know there was a million dollars in that refrigerator. But apparently, it had once been owned by a drug lord who occasionally had a million dollars to stick away somewhere, apparently. And uh, he had died. That drug lord had died, and the implication was that it was under suspicious circumstances. But uh, these men somehow learned of the drug lord's hiding place and tracked down the fridge and who had it and got it back. And they were hoping, presumably, that the uh, treasure was still hidden inside somewhere. Kelvin was actually glad that. He didn't know that he didn't find that treasure. But many people are very near the treasure, pass by the treasure, don't see the treasure. They didn't in Jesus' day. They listened, they watched. But many of them turned away. We read that in the Scripture, in the the Gospel. But fortunately... Many found him too. 
In John 1, John the Baptist, in verse 35, again the next day, John stood with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. And these two disciples, they they heard what he said. And it's, uh, you just picture them turning on their heel and looking at Jesus. And it says they followed him. They followed Jesus. And one of the two uh, who had heard that announcement by John and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he went to Simon and said to Simon, we have found the Messiah. He was saying, we have found the treasure. And he brought him to Jesus. And the next day it says, Jesus wanted to go, go to Galilee and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. And a few verses later it says uh, that Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathaniel wondered, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said, Come and see. And when Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, uh, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus said, I saw you before you saw me, basically, is what he was saying. And Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. These men had found the treasure. They had found the treasure. There are many other examples. Think of Nicodemus. He found the treasure. That Gadarene demoniac. He found the treasure. He was sitting at the feet of Jesus in his right mind. He knew he had found something extremely precious. The man that was let down through the roof by his friends, and Jesus said to him, your sins are forgiven. The woman by the well in Samaria, and Jesus told her, I who speak to you am he, the Messiah. The lame man at the temple hoping for money and Peter and John, well, I guess Peter was talking, said to him, Silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give you. He was healed. And he followed Jesus. He had found a treasure far, far more valuable than these little coins that he would collect during the days that he spent there at the temple. And Lydia, the seller of purple in Acts. Now, a certain woman named Lydia heard us, Luke writing, 
She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira, who worshipped God. And the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. She found the treasure. She recognized the treasure. The Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? And Paul revealed to him the treasure. And through history, we could uh, do many examples. Conrad Grebel, a college student living a loose and simple life, joined a Bible study. And he found the treasure, and his life changed dramatically. And he became one of the leaders of the early Anabaptist church. John Newton, the slave trader, found Jesus, found the treasure. And he wrote about it in his song, Amazing Grace. A Hudson Taylor in the early 1800s. He was, uh, as a youth, in his early teens, he was discouraged with trying to be a Christian. And he began to think that he could never be saved. And that he had just as well uh, lived for the world. And one day, he, it says uh, about him that he picked up a track and was going to read the story part and, uh, that came before the little sermon at the end. And somewhere in that track, he came across the phrase, work of Christ. The finished work of Christ that caught his attention. And he asked himself, what is, what is finished? And he was somebody who had heard a lot of teaching and preaching and had read in the Bible. But it dawned on him when he thought about that that Christ died for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And that dawned on him in a different So he did accept that truth. He accepted that truth. And where I read it said that he fell on his knees praising God. And uh, just a, a joyous gratefulness for what Christ has done. And it was life-changing. He learned later also that people had been praying for him, encouraging for all of us. I had an email, uh, it's maybe been a year ago or more, from uh, a writer from New York. And she asked me, uh, have I ever heard of Son of Sam? Some of you remember the son of Sam uh, back in the 70s, a serial killer in New York City that was terrorizing uh, New York. His name was David Berkowitz. He was, uh, he had a very troubled childhood and became involved in the occult and satanic worship and so on. And heard voices. He would walk down a 
street or sidewalk in the night and come on a parked car or somebody, some people standing um, in deserted places, and he would shoot them. And he killed a number of people, and then he would leave a note signed, Son of Sam. So he became known as the Son of Sam killer. Well, he was caught and tried and convicted and sentenced to I don't know how many life sentences. But uh, what, what this author was telling me, and I hadn't heard this, she said he was converted in prison. She said it's an awesome story, and he is now known as the Son of Hope. And he's not even interested in parole because he enjoys telling uh, fellow prisoners about Jesus. And he's in jail about three hours south of me. And she had written him a letter and told him how what a blessing his testimony had been to her about the saving power of Jesus Christ. And he replied to her letter. Son of Sam became son of hope. He found a treasure. And no doubt some of you have heard of Nahino Karishi, uh, the uh, one who, the uh, former Muslim who wrote, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And you met people yesterday here that uh, had the treasure in their hearts. Jan, the pastor's wife that knows man, uh, stopped by the bookstore, and uh, she'd been there last year. She has an enthusiasm, a pastor's wife, she has an enthusiasm for the Lord. She does jail ministry, and uh, she likes to share a testimony, a paper with, with uh, the girls she ministers to. And uh, God is crazy about you as part of uh, the message. Just that God uh, loves you. God loves you. God cares about you so much. And Daryl Harper, some of you know him from the community here somewhere, uh, former missionary to the Philippines. And here we are with a, a group of people this morning who have found the treasure. It's an encouragement, a blessing to meet with people that have found the treasure. And one thing they have in common, they sold all that they had and uh, bought the field, as we saw in, the, in that verse in Matthew 13. They valued the treasure more than anything else. Jesus is life. He is eternal life. He is the great satisfaction and satisfier of all the deepest needs of man. Nothing else even comes close. Anything else that man tries is artificial and counterfeit. The woman at the well of Samaria found the source of living water, the water that truly quenches the thirsty heart. Jesus is our hope for today and tomorrow and eternity. And we are grateful for Him. 
Thanks be to God for His unspeakable gift, the King James says. Indescribable gift, the New King James says. You know, you read of, hear of testimonies like that, and uh, it's a challenge to me to hear it, to read it. And, you know, a question that comes to me sometimes is, do I love and value the treasure? Do I love and treasure Jesus Christ as I should for who He is and for what He has provided at great personal cost? You know, Rich quoted from, who was it, Frank Reed about... Uh, uh, loving the beautiful and ordinary being uh, what you'd expect, I guess. But we can let the lovely and the beautiful treasure of Jesus Christ become ordinary in our lives, in our hearts. And, you know, it just, it's not that we don't appreciate Him or love Him as much as we should. Just a few thoughts. Uh, yes. We want to grow in gratefulness. I think one way that helps us grow in gratefulness is to express gratefulness. Express, uh, expressing our gratefulness and our love to Christ is uh, an encouragement to us. God blesses us when we do that. And we need to think about selling all that we have and buying the field. Selling all that we have and buying into who Jesus is and belonging to Him. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is the reasonable thing to do. This is a reasonable way to respond. Then Galen was talking about time, and this is a priority to spend time with what we love most. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And where our treasure is, we will find more of our time is there too. And another thing that can help us is to share our treasure. That was a common characteristic among the people that uh, we that I listed there. Uh, the disciples. One of the two who heard John speak was Andrew, and he found Peter and told him, "We have found the Messiah." And he brought it to Jesus. We have found the treasure. He shared that with his brother, Peter. The Samaritan woman, by the well, she didn't just, uh, she ran up to the town and told the folks there that she had found the treasure. Down by the well, he is. It helps us grow in our appreciation. Sharing a word or a testimony, like we heard already this morning, is one way to share the treasure. But um, I thought about this yesterday. I know this was happening a lot. I believe this, that every smile 
by a Christian who truly loves the Lord Jesus and is living for Him. Every kind word, every helping hand in Jesus' name, every person who is doing these things because they genuinely care about others is portraying the treasure, portraying the love of Jesus. Martha read a book that she was telling me some things about uh, related to homeless folks. And, and she said about this one man who uh, had a heart for the homeless and would uh, do acts of kindness, give them meals. Uh, I'm not sure what all he did, but he became known as the Jesus man or something like that. And... Uh, he hasn't even told them, hey, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. He just did these things. And they began calling him the Jesus man. Every converted, transformed life that, that portrays spiritual fruitfulness and Christ-like character shows the value of the treasure. It's not impossible to miss. We can be having a wonderful Romans 8 day and uh, meeting people. Some you sense some response. Others you sense a coldness. Not everybody sees the city that is set on a hill. It is hidden to the blind and the heart hearted. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field that the man found and hid. And for joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. We want to grow in our gratefulness for that indescribable gift of Jesus. We want to grow in that. We want to encourage each other to grow in that. We want to share that so other people can find this wonderful treasure and share it with other people who can find this wonderful treasure. and through it all to bring great glory to God.